Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Democratic development in post-colonial Africa has been complex and uneven. Scholars estimate at least 200 attempted military coups on the continent since 1960, with roughly half of those being successful, defined as creating a new government that lasts at least a week. The current year, 2022, has already seen two coup attempts, a takeover by the army in Burkina Faso and a failed coup attempt in Guinea-Bissau. Those who study the region have long tried to understand both the dynamics behind military coups across the variety of peoples and states on the continent and to propose policies that can help to avoid such instability going forward. Our guest today, Brigadier General Dan Kuali of Malawi, has studied the problem of military coups and civil society in Africa and joins us to discuss both the problem and possible solutions. Brigadier General Dan Kuali is an international fellow in the Carlisle Scholars Program at the United States Army War College, class of 2022. He serves in the Malawi Defense Force as Chief of Legal Services and Judge Advocate General. He deployed as a military observer and legal advisor in the then United Nations Mission in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. He is also an extraordinary professor of international law, Center of Human Rights, University of Pretoria, Professor of International Law, Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law at Lund University, and Adjunct Professor and Founding Executive Director of the Center for Strategic Studies, Malawi University of Science and Technology. Welcome to A Better Peace, General Kuali. Thank you so much, uh, Ron, for having me. You bet. So, Dan, I, I like to start these conversations, especially when, with international fellows such as yourself, to talk about your experience at the War College and how your studies here have advanced your, uh, your research and your work on this particular subject that interests you. Uh, thank you, Ron. Uh, it, it has actually been an enormously enriching experience. Very insightful courses on, for example, strategy, policy, military campaign and strategy, defense management, and all. I like, as a matter of fact, the idea of answering the question why wars begin and how to end them. Mm-hmm. True to the philosophy of the then Secretary of War, Elihu Root, who in 1903 uh, stated that uh, the Army War College was founded not to promote war, but to preserve peace uh, by intelligent and adequate preparation to repel aggression. Having mastered uh, the tactical aspects of uh, warfare and uh, laws of armed conflict in the past, this uh, professional military education here is an icing on the cake. So I'm curious for you personally, in your military career, were you always in the Judge Advocate General Corps 
in uh, in the Malawian army, or did you begin in a in a different branch? Affirmative. Mm-hmm. I graduated as a lawyer in uh, Malawi at uh, the University of Malawi uh, Chancellor College, and then I joined the Malawi Defense Force just after working as a senior state advocate in the Ministry of Justice in Malawi. Ah. So after my military training as an officer, I have been in the legal department since uh, that was 2000. So two, so good. So you put in two decades in uh, precisely, and yeah, still counting, and still counting. That's right. Well, and and you have you have served in in various international capacities, and so I want to ask you because I know that it's an especially difficult subject. Um, what was your experience like when you were working with the United Nations operation in the Democratic Republic of Congo? I first deployed uh, to the United Nations mission uh, in the DRC as a military observer. Mm-hmm. And then because of my qualifications, they realized that I was a lawyer and I would rather be deployed as a legal advisor. So my role was uh, to advise the division commander uh, on uh, legal issues relating to uh, the peace support operations, especially uh, in the eastern part of uh, the DRC. Mm-hmm. So our headquarters was then in Kisangani. As a legal advisor at the UN mission in DRC, I looked at uh, uh, rules of engagement especially providing training to troops on uh, rules of engagement and also helping them to understand the mandate uh, that the United Nations Security Council uh, accorded uh, the uh, UN uh, peace support operation in uh, DRC. So we looked at uh, protection of civilians, which was and still is a challenge in the DRC, uh, particularly the fact that uh, non-armed groups would time and again attack uh, civilians. So that was a big challenge. But also you would have um, what I would call a dilemma in uh, operations. For example, we had uh, troops, special forces, who were supposed to deploy to a mission uh, to, to basically... Uh, arrest one of the uh, perpetrators of atrocities who who was identified at that time. But unfortunately, the Intel report indicated that uh, that particular person was surrounded by what I would call human shield. Mm. So you see uh, women and children surrounding uh, those, uh, those perpetrators. And it was a difficult mission, and uh, my role was to say, what do we do uh, in such operation? And because the mission in DRC faces kind of like new challenges in uh, peace support operations in the event that, uh, uh, for example, now the mandate is basically a war-fighting mandate attacking and disarming the uh, uh, non-state armed groups. Now, in that particular case, the special forces were tasked to arrest, uh, you know, those individuals, but they were surrounded by uh, uh, human shields. So what would we do as uh, blue hermits? Should we continue to, to engage them? 
or should we abort the mission? So it was really uh, a, a difficult mission. Eventually, uh, the mission was aborted because of, uh, you know, these were blue helmets and right. uh, you could not afford to lose uh, women and children. So those were the challenges that we faced uh, in uh, DRC. Uh, apart from that, uh, we also had a lot of uh, human rights uh, violations by uh, the non-state armed uh, uh, groups. Now, we had to tell or assist the, the troops to understand what human rights are mm -hmm. and what violations look like. So, for example, if a, a soldier or, or a rebel is uh, stopping women from uh, going to a well to fetch water, one would just say that uh, that is uh, a soldier stopping women from uh, getting water. But that is actually a human rights uh, violation. So, yeah, we, we told the troops that, you know, human rights violations do not come in clear-cut packages. You have to know what human rights are, and then you need to discern the violations. Another example would be where rebels stopped uh, people from going to a polling station to cast their vote. So if you don't know, if you don't understand the right to vote, for example, you wouldn't know that that's a violation of the right to vote. Mm -hmm. So my role was uh, basically to unpack those kind of issues and then help soldiers understand and also working hand in hand with the division commander to ensure that uh, we implement the mandate that the United Nations Security Council had given the mission. I, I find that very interesting that it sounds as though a big part of the legal advisor's mission is educational, if you will, right, to uh, to help train uh, and educate uh, soldiers and also to make to get let everybody know sort of what the rules are they need to be following. Obviously, the Congo was a particularly complicated place because government had already broken down um, is um, are there are there procedures for educating soldiers about human rights uh, and about their responsibilities that you've used in the in the mission in the Congo that also can be used in training soldiers in states uh, in states that are otherwise stable sort of as a kind of uh, preparatory training to help soldiers understand their role within a constitutional order to avoid say soldiers taking on uh to participating in military coups is that a similar level of education that we should uh, that 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 should be taken on by legal advisors or are there is it different in places where things are stable now but you want to make sure they stay stable into the future yeah I, I, absolutely just to add that apart from um, education Legal advisors are also supposed to be involved in the planning phases of uh, operations. Mm -hmm. But that's an element that has been overlooked because uh, military uh, planners would rather go alone or they think that uh, legal advisors really uh, put spanners in the works. But that's an important element that they need to work hand in hand, especially issues of targeting and uh, interpretation of uh, rules of engagement. Right. Now, answering your question directly, yes, legal advisors are also supposed to be involved in uh, training in security sector governance, which is, in my view, 
pertinent and timely in Africa at the moment. But let me be clear. Usually, uh, security sector governance is uh, used interchangeably with the concept of uh, security sector reform. These are two concepts, though related, but they are different. So security sector governance, as you are aware, refers to the structures and processes that shape decisions about uh, security and uh, their implementation. Whereas uh, security sector reform aims to uh, enhance security sector governance through effective and efficient delivery of uh, security under conditions of uh, democratic oversight and control. Mm-hmm. So in simple terms, the objective of security sector reform is to achieve good security sector governance, where security actors are effective and accountable to the people. Another key point is that uh, security sector reform does not only apply to post-conflict settings, but also in transitional and uh, developed states. Suffice to say that uh, the concept of uh, security sector reform uh, coincided with the post-Cold War paradigm shift, uh, which focused on uh, uh, state security, but now uh, after the Cold War, focus changed to include human security. That's a broader perspective of uh, uh, security. Right. Well, and and this idea about defining security, but also defining stability, um, uh, that when we think about Africa, the, the statistics that I mentioned at the beginning about the dangers and the potentials of military coups, that uh, while it's it it sounds very dire, it's also true that there are some regions of Africa that have seen more instability and more military coups than others. And um, in in your study, what is it that uh, what is it that contributes to the uh, sort of the political stability? Uh, and I won't say the well, I'll use the phrase the coup proofing of an African nation. Um, you know, what what tends to work? to encourage stability versus what what uh, factors contribute to instability that will make coups more likely? Yeah, that's correct, uh, Ron. Security sector governance, in my view, uh, comes to the fore uh, given uh, the proliferation of coup d'etats in Africa. As you are aware, Africa experienced 82 uh, coup d'etats between 1960 and uh, 2000. That was uh, before the African Union was established. And after the creation of the African Union, uh, that is to say between 2000 and uh, now, the continent has uh, witnessed 21 coup d'etats. By 21 coup d'etats, I mean successful coups. Successful coups, coups yeah, sure. Not including uh, uh, attempted coups. So Africa, especially African countries, are burdened by uh, low social and economic development uh, levels, suppression of opposition, human rights abuses in some countries, poverty and uh, poor social services. Pushists, that is to say, uh, the folks who uh, execute coup d'etats, have exploited these uh, democratic deficits to assume the status of savior and uh, seize power. However, as you are aware, Ron, uh, coups are not a panacea 
to the inability of democracy to deliver public goods and security uh, to the people. But uh, as a matter of fact, the antithesis of uh, a democratic culture. Now, the challenge that I've noted is that uh, if, if you see the rank bracket of uh, the people who have been uh, involved in coup d'etats, you see that they are an excluded group of people when we're doing uh, security sector governance, because focus is really on uh, the strategic leaders and not the leaders at the operational and uh, tactical uh, group who are actually key and need to have this security sector governance. So yes, we need a security sector governance across the board. Added to that, uh, at the moment, I would say democracy has progressed slowly uh, on the African continent. Uh, the process of uh, democratization has been marred uh, by the formation of political parties, rigging and winning uh, elections, and also state capture by a few elites. Mm -hmm. Africa is uh, at the moment undergoing uh, significant transitions, including uh, democratic, economic, technological, urbanization, and socio-economic uh, transformation. These evolving dynamics have impacted progress uh, in terms of uh, implementation of uh, constitutionalism uh, on the continent. For example, you see that uh, the youthful civil society in Africa has become vigilant in guarding against the erosion of uh, democratic principles and manipulation by the ruling elites. However, foundations of political culture uh, on the continent, which are necessary to consolidate liberal democracies, are still weak uh, in most states. Hence, uh, they open doors uh, for coup d'etats. So you see that uh, uh, the coup d'etat uh, executioners would uh, seize power based on uh, the fact that they deem themselves as saviors. But in my view, Coup d'etat should be condemned. And if you look at uh, the recent coup that took place in uh, Mali, where the pushicists were arguing that they will change the country for the better, they will provide security to the people. Now I was reading a report that the situation in Mali is even worse. Now, and actually, this gets to an interesting question that uh, healthy democracies encourage, should encourage in an odd way, both disagreement and agreement, right? A healthy democracy, people should be able to disagree on political, on policy questions, but then agree on the rules for working them out. And so the challenge for any younger democratic state, constitutional order, is how do you manage to do both of those things, right? To, to have intense disagreement and a belief that it's okay if I lose this election because I'll win the next one. And I was thinking that in, in Malawi, Right. You had presidential elections that were disputed, had to be annulled, had to be rerun, but um, managed to deal with this transition in a way that is relatively right stable and certainly free of free of any uh, uh, any negative military involvement. And do you think there were certain elements in Malawian society that uh, uh, or certain structures in place? that helped Malawi to manage this kind of disagreement without the kind of uh, 
violence that might have that has marred political transitions in other African countries? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in Malawi, we have uh, an independent uh, judiciary. Mm-hmm. We have a vibrant uh, civil society. Mm-hmm. We have a professional military. We also have uh, we also have uh, a quite robust uh, citizenry, whereby you, you you know the citizens in Malawi are empowered to the effect that. Uh, they can always go to the street and protest, exercise their right to protest uh, in, in the event that uh, they've seen or noticed that something uh, uncalled for and becoming has happened. So generally in Africa, you see that uh, because the institutions that are supposed to uphold liberal democracy are weak, there are three trends that uh, have been exposed by the fragility of uh, the democratic institutions. So number one would be the youth-led popular protests, where, for example, in uh, Egypt in uh, 2013, you saw the youths going on the street, protesting against uh, repressive leaders and removed uh, them uh, from power. So Africa has seen a renewed quest for democracy uh, expressed uh, itself in the streets, uh, popular culture, the internet, and uh, social media. So socioeconomic conditions have uh, elicited public uh, outrage and contributed to the military sense of uh, righteousness in uh, seizing power from undemocratic uh, governments. The second one, which is not usually mentioned, is uh, post- what we call constitutional coups. Mm. So constitutional coups will be where leaders have changed constitutional term limits or re-elections or abused human rights or perpetuate their tenure in office uh, in order to uh, continue to rule. So this is uh, something that we also need to work on while we're talking about this third issue of uh, coup d'etats where troops would capitalize on civic discontent to uh, seize power from uh, civil authorities, like uh, you like uh, rightly said in Sudan and uh, Guinea, yeah. So the calculus of uh, pushes is that uh, they look at the costs and benefits. Uh, the obvious benefits uh, of a coup would be uh, to to seize power and uh, have access to state resources, and the cost would be to risk death or prosecution and imprisonment. The, the challenge is that uh, coup d'etats have a domino effect such that uh, a successful coup significantly increases the probability of subsequent coups in that country and also in the neighboring countries. Uh, therefore, if uh, the coup plotters go with impunity, the trajectory of military takeovers on the African continent will continue. This is why the African Union. And uh, even the members of the African Union, as well as the international community, should condemn uh, coups hmm. as a and, matter of principle. As a matter of principle, because you know, even even if one may sympathize with the complaints that lead to the coup, the the very fact that a military coup succeeds is damaging in the long run to democratic development. Uh, and this then creates a problem. Then, if you are in, if you are in the opposition. 
in a country where that let's say you're you're facing a a constitutional order that is repressive um how does one find a way to um to change that situation without resorting to armed struggle i mean i know this is this is a problem when, when you look at the at, at different countries uh i think of zimbabwe for example right when if a president refuses to leave and refuse and is is cracking down on opposition how long can the opposition continue to say we're going to try to play by democratic rules and avoid violence? Um, and what kind of what kind of advice uh, or, or what what kind of what kind of of principles should advance the notion of democratic disagreement without resorting to violence? And do we have good examples of people being able to do that on the uh, on the continent? Yeah, yeah, Malawi is a good example. Mm-hmm. Zambia is a good example. Zambia is a good example. But, yeah. but this is exactly where the African Union uh, and uh, regional economic communities would mm-hmm. come in. As you are aware, Africa is divided into uh, five regional economic communities. So you have one in the south, east, central, north, and uh, west. ECOWAS in the west, Southern Africa Development Community in the south, ECAS uh, in the central and uh, East African uh, community in the east and, uh, of course, uh, northern North Africa regional uh, cooperation arrangement uh, in the north. Mm-hmm. Apart from that, the African Union has uh, prohibited unconstitutional changes of government as, as its principle. If you look at uh, the Constitutive Act of the African Union, uh, which was adopted in 2000, uh, in its uh, Article 4, Paragraph P, you see that uh, unconstitutional changes of government uh, are prohibited. Mm -hmm. Added to that, the Protocol on Establishing Peace and Security Council uh, of the African Union has also prohibited uh, coup d'etats. More importantly, we have um, a charter which we call uh, African Charter on Democracy, Elections, and Good Governance, which has also reiterated the prohibition of uh, coup d'etats. So the point I'm trying to make is that uh, the African Union has the laws in place, but what is required is uh, enforcement of these laws. So in such situations where you have uh, coups, we need to enforce this. You know, justice is blind. We shouldn't even listen to who has uh, plotted a coup where. We need to uh, enforce this as a matter of principle. Uh, number two, the regional uh, economic communities should also condemn a coup d'etat in the event that uh, the African Union has not done so. Added to that, regional economic communities should condemn the extension of uh, term limits Mm -hmm. because uh, unconstitutional changes of uh, term limits is also a recipe for coup d'etats. We see that uh, there is no consensus at the moment or common position at the moment in regional economic communities on uh, condemning extensions of uh, term limits. Number three is the fact that uh, African states should improve governance and oversight institutions. This is where examples such as Malawi, Ghana, 
Zambia, uh, even Kenya would come in. So African countries are burdened by low social and economic development, and poor governance is the main positive factor of uh, the continent's uh, underdevelopment. So what African countries need to do is to strengthen governance by improving, for example, revenue collection, effective planning, policy making and implementation, which is vital to advance inclusive uh, growth at a pace commensurate with the social and economic development of the continent. Uh, if, if I may interrupt, is, is it fair to say that this is something that uh, African states should be uh, teaching each other in the sense that that states that are successful, that this is something within these, within either the regional economic organizations or within the African Union, that this is something that Africans helping Africans to uh, to see what works, what doesn't, sharing best practices and enforcing the rules. That's I, I wanted to get back to that notion of enforcing. When you say if the African Union has a rule against coups, they have to be able to enforce it. That means member states have to be prepared to to act uh, when they see violations of these rules. And do you see that as a, do you see hopeful signs that this kind of cooperation is, uh, developing is occurring? I would say yes and no. Yes. In the sense that, uh, there is a renewed, uh, political will among the leaders uh, in Africa to ensure that uh, they follow the norms. I'll also say no because uh, there's still like uh, the old uh, old cadre of leaders who do not follow the, the law. But the key is uh, in strengthening uh, civil society because, I mean, the civil society have nothing to lose. They're not in politics. They're not in power. They are the victims. So African citizens should be empowered to reject unconstitutional changes of government as it was the case in Sudan uh, this year. You heard the civil society in Sudan went on the streets and uh, protested against uh, uh, a coup d'etat. Apart from that, uh, the civil society should ensure that uh, African leaders commit to democratic processes, which should be anchored uh, on the will and the agency of the people, as well as uh, the implementation of inclusive institutions of governance. So we also need to provide support to human rights defenders, uh, women groups, especially professional groups like uh, law associations, Mm -hmm. associations of uh, accountants. Those have a role to play. And I see that in most countries, uh, the professional groups are really quiet. They just leave it to human rights defenders. But this is a role of everybody to ensure that... uh, we uphold rule of law and good governance. In so doing, we will also uh, pro- uh, prevent uh, a lot of problems. This reminds me of uh, the role of the military. You see that uh, a lot of support has been given to tactical operations of the military. Yes, in as much as uh, that is uh, commendable, uh, support would be given to buy uh, military equipment and whatnot. But what is also key is to empower the military with uh, conflict prevention, dispute resolution skills, 
which are key, especially regarding the kind of problems that we face on the continent. You talked about sharing best practices. So if the United States, for example, organizes a training right on the continent in order to achieve a multiplier effect, you teach the troops on uh, dispute resolution techniques. You teach the troops uh, conflict prevention skills. You know, those will go a long way to avoid uh, problems of uh, armed conflicts, intra as well as uh, inter uh, armed conflicts. But also it will be a good forum for sharing best practices. So we need additional skills. Uh, in that regard, because uh, the terrain has changed. The nature of problems is different. And added to that, you see that I talked about uh, poor governance being uh, one, of, uh, one of the root causes of uh, uh, conflict on the African continent. What I saw in my studies here uh, at the War College is that uh, there is little focus in terms of uh, political economy for, for, for strategic leaders. So we need to learn political economy because uh, economics affects security and security has an impact on economics, eventually economic development of a country. So if economic exclusion or socioeconomic exclusion is a problem, which results into a conflict, then uh, us as strategic leaders, we need to understand political economy in order to advise political leaders on how to prevent conflicts. And this is, I will say, you know, this is why it's wonderful that we bring international fellows like you here to Carlisle to discuss these kinds of things and to, to take your skills back to your home country. And the militaries like the Malawian military will need officers like General Dan Kuali to help them understand good governance, to help them understand the importance of an independent judiciary, to help them understand the importance of peaceful conflict resolution. We are just about out of time for this conversation. There's so much more to talk about, but I hope that uh, that we've had a chance to talk about your work and about your uh, country. General Dan Kuali, thank you so much for joining us on A Better Peace. Thank you so much, Ron, for having me. That's right. It's been a pleasure to speak to you, and it's been a pleasure to have all of you listen in. Thank you for joining us. Please send us your comments on this program and all of our programs. Send us your thoughts for future programs. Please rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Please subscribe to A Better Piece so you can rate and review and so other people can find out about us because we are always interested in broadening the community for conversations like this one. Uh, we hope to welcome you to future conversations. And until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu and have a great day.